Jesus was aching, hurting, grieving. He had just learned that his cousin John had been killed after critiquing the lusty morality of the king, Herod. John had been the first to recognize Jesus, leaping while still in the womb. John had been the first to point out Jesus as the Messiah, behold the Lamb of God. John had prodded Jesus to action early in his ministry, sending disciples to ask with no little sarcasm, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? Hurting and aching with the news of John's death, Jesus just wanted to be alone with his grief, to pray, to renew his relationship with his heavenly Father. But the crowds would not allow that. They needed more. The Gospels tell us that all of Jerusalem and Judea had gone out to see John, to be stirred by his preaching, to be baptized by him. The crowds anticipated that something remarkable was going to happen in the apostolic synergy, the electricity they felt between John and Jesus. The excitement was everywhere. John was a rock star. Acclaimed and with a huge following, he exuded grand hope for change in a land occupied by a foreign military power and animated by a faith that had become stale in its routine and restricted by state power. And then John was dead. The Gospel narratives don't give us a sense that John and Jesus were particularly close. They were cousins. John was probably the weird cousin in the family. Every family has one of those. It's humbling to consider that your extended family might consider you to be the weird one. John certainly was. Well, maybe they weren't close, but John and Jesus drew strength from one another. Jesus following the preaching of John, John hearing of the miracles of Jesus. Like twin goalposts at the ends of a playing field or twin baskets at the end of a court, they drew the attention of everyone who was excited at what was happening between them. And then John was dead. Beginning in the late 1800s, there was a movement to distinguish the Jesus of history from the Christ of faith. The theory was that Christian tradition and piety had added so many layers atop the human person of Jesus of Nazareth that perhaps we had hidden the real man. Reading the Gospels, proponents contended all we could see were the added layers of piety and we missed the human thoughts and feelings of the itinerant rabbi from Nazareth. Well, that attempt at scholarship failed because the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith are entirely the same person. Any attempt to split faith from life, prayer from the feelings in your heart, is artificial and indeed demonic. Consider that the first effort to do that 
came from the serpent in the garden. Well, how did that turn out for humanity? Not so great, and it also broke God's heart. The Jesus of history and the Christ of faith received with shock the news of his cousin's sudden death. It was not expected. It was devastating, and Jesus just wanted to be alone. He got into a boat by himself. He headed toward a deserted spot. But the people also learned that John was brutally killed, and they were in shocked disbelief. They needed Jesus to reassure them that this was not going to be the end. His heart broken, his thinking jumbled, Jesus saw the people who had traveled on foot to be with him. An astonishing and very graphic verb is used in the Bible to describe his reaction. Splunk nidzomai is the Greek term. It literally is a gut punch. One's splunkna, or innards, are your guts. The verb splunk nidzomai describes one's innards, one's guts being turned inside out with deep emotion. Jesus felt a gut punch when he saw the people. They were hurting every bit as much as he was, and he was pulled by an energy beyond his grief to feed their hungers. Their stomachs were empty, but so were their, were their hopes and dreams. The people could have gone home when they heard of John's death. They could have given up on the thought that their broken society and broken religion could be healed. But the emptiness that they felt, the shock at John's death, the dying of their hopes would not allow them to be alone and afraid. Something, perhaps they knew not what, impelled them to run on foot to where Jesus would be all the way around the Sea of Galilee, and they did just that. It seems that over 10,000, perhaps as many as 15,000 of them did that. The aching heart of Jesus connected with their loss, with the numbness that came from learning of John's sudden death. He was stirred at the sight of a stadium-sized crowd, dazed and nonplussed hungry for something to cling to in an uncertain world, hungry for understanding of the confusing world events around them, hungry, well, just hungry. The feeding of the multitude occurs more frequently than any other episode in the four Gospels, six times in all. This testifies to its importance for the early Christian community an importance due to its connection with the Eucharist, what we're doing right here and right now. Whereas we tend to see the origin of the Eucharist exclusively in the Last Supper, the early church laid at least as much stress on Jesus eating with his disciples in Galilee, to say nothing of the post-resurrection meals such as the fish fry on the Sea of Galilee. After Jesus was punched in the gut 
by his love for these people, his ministry went on overdrive. Immediately, he begins to teach more powerfully, to heal more resolutely, and to know that his destiny is in Jerusalem, not in Galilee, and he turns with determination to drive to Jerusalem and his apostles with him. Watch for something truly marvelous in next Sunday's gospel, which precedes precisely after this miraculous feeding of a hungry crowd. Way back in the book of Genesis, creation began with untamed water, a sea without form, chaos and disorder. From the chaos, God created cosmos, order and life, And in the Bible, water is always a reminder of God's power to bring order to chaos, life out of death, creation out of nothing. So pay attention next Sunday as Jesus leaves this place of the miraculous feeding and walks across the water of the Sea of Galilee, proceeding to begin a new moment of creation for people who had lost hope and had begun to see only the disorder in the world around them. From the gut punch of John's death came for Jesus new impetus to bring life from death, order from confusion, certainty from doubt. And it's a reminder that the gut punches of life aren't the end. Hunger isn't lasting. Chaos is not permanent. Just as the crowds did, we do. We come from a disordered world here, propelled by something we may not know what, but following the invitation of God's grace to spend time with Jesus, to hear just one word of hope, and to be fed. To be sure, there are hundreds of churches, large and small, all around us, where Sunday after Sunday, people come to worship, to praise, sometimes more dynamically than we do. But here, only in the Catholic Church, do we come to be fed not to talk about Jesus and praise him, but to admit that we are hungry and reach out to him to be fed. Just as the crowds did, we follow him where he is. In his heart, in his splunkna, in his guts, is the food that satisfies. That's what the Mass, that's why the Mass isn't just worship. It's the moment when need meets grace in the self-offering of Jesus. This is my body. This is my blood. 
Here we come with all that fills our hearts, the smiles and the tears, the weeping and the dancing. We come to say, thank you, Jesus, for all the good you have given. We come to say, and to say, I need you, Jesus, for all that is lacking in my life. Here we are fed miraculously, healed, and sent as messengers to a fragile world of broken promises to bring a greater and more abundant life.